congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ this afternoon, we will listen together to the Tenth Commandment. If we make a list of some rules, then we often arrange such a list in, a list in order of importance. Like to ignore the first rule on the list is much worse of an offense than to ignore the one on the bottom. Now, it is absolutely not so with the Ten Commandments. You should never look at the Ten Commandments that way. And that's very clear when the Lord Jesus, summarizing those commandments in Matthew 22, said that to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our soul, and with all our mind is the first and the great commandment. And on the second, he says, it's like it. And it's to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the summary of those ten commandments. Now, to ignore then the second commandment, to love our neighbor as ourselves, is to ignore the first. One who does not love one's neighbor as oneself can also not claim that he loves God with all his heart, soul, and mind. Because you're ignoring now the God who gave that commandment. And so, that counts for all ten commandments too. And so again, so to think that the tenth commandment, because it is the last of the ten, therefore is the least important, would be a huge mistake. In the letter of James, chapter 2, we read, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And it is therefore that the answer to question 113 in our catechism teaches us that the Tenth Commandment has something to say about our attitude towards all the other commandments too. Looking at the meaning and the reach of the Ten Commandments, it's correct to think of the Tenth Commandment as a sort of a climactic conclusion of the Ten Commandments. The Tenth Commandment is the commandment that adds an extra dimension to all the other commandments. And this is what our catechism focuses upon in this Lord's Day. And in doing so, it doesn't say much, or not anything at all, actually, about the letter of the commandment itself, about the literal meaning of this commandment. And also this afternoon, we will look at that, certainly, too. So let's listen this afternoon to the Word of God as it is summarized in Lord's Day 44 under the theme, in the Tenth Commandment, the Lord addresses our desires. And then we will look first at the letter of this commandment, and then the reach of this tenth commandment, and also the giver of this commandment. Question 113 in the Catechism asks, what does the tenth commandment require of us? And then the answer says, that not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments ever arises in our hearts. Rather, with all our hearts, we should always hate all sin and delight in our righteousness. It's so true. It's a beautiful statement. And, but when we read the Ten Commandments, then we see that it speaks about coveting. 
the coveting of the things that belongs to our neighbor. And it seems strong to me that, and maybe to you too, that the answer of the catechism does in actual fact not address this commandment itself. Well, it did all the other ones. Catechism does not even mention the word covet. It says nothing about the things that belong to our neighbor either. Does that mean that the catechism is all wrong here? Not, to, not at all. But it is true that it does not directly address the letter of this tenth commandment. And this is why we will, we will, will address it in the first point of our sermon this afternoon. We will look at what, it mean, what the tenth commandment means for us. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Shall not covet. Now, first, what does the word to covet, the verb to covet, mean? And I looked in different dictionaries, and one said to covet is to feel a strong desire for something that you do not have. And another dictionary said, coveting is desiring something. And another said, coveting is a blameworthy, envious desiring. And that dictionary is right on. That's what coveting is. It's a blameworthy, envious desiring. And then the commandments begins with saying, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. And then you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. It means those separate, and then it summarizes it off with other examples. So what about the house? Well, it was in Israel of that time that the law was given quite different than with us with our houses. When the people of Israel had conquered the land Canaan, the Lord had given to each family of his people a property, a part of the land, often with a dwelling on it. And he had given it to them as a lasting inheritance. And therefore, according to the law of the Lord, as you find it in Leviticus 25, verse 23, they were not allowed to sell their inheritance to someone else. People were not allowed to take in their possession the inheritance that the Lord had bestowed upon the neighbor. Not in any way. The land is mine, the Lord had said. Their land and their houses upon it were not just theirs to sell. And that's exactly why, maybe you remember the story, why Naboth did not want to sell his vineyard to the, that godless king Ahab. It was his inheritance from the Lord. It was his part, his possession in the promised land. And so again, there was for the Israelites no way that they could get the house of the neighbor without sinning against the Lord. And that made then at the same time desiring such a house a sin against the Lord. He had given it to someone else. Now, in our time, in society, houses are not given to us that way. 
There's something that the Lord provided for so that we could purchase a house. But it just, it's still, it comes to us by the hand of the Lord and, and we should not maliciously or blame, in a blameworthy way desire and covet the house of our neighbor. But then the, com- the commandment continues and it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And it was then, that in the time that God gave this commandment already so, and it's still the same that the wife is not someone who is purchased with money. Slaves are in, a certain, in certain circumstances and in certain times were purchased with money and became the property of the owner, not wives. Wives are not ever the property of the husband. But they are a gift of the Lord to the husband. And whatever we do with the Lord's gifts to us, we are accountable for with the Lord, to the Lord. In the same way, the husband is a gift of the Lord to his wife. And both will be accountable for the way that they deal and that they act towards that gift. The Bible teaches us very clearly in Matthew that the Lord says about a man and his wife that God has joined them together and then let not man separate. A wife is joined to her husband by the Lord himself and therefore they are one. The husband and the wife are a lasting gift of the Lord to each other. And that means then that there is just simply no way to get your neighbor's wife or husband without committing a great sin. Not even coveting her or him, a desire to have her or him is a sin against the Lord, who gave her to someone else. And of course, this Lord not, and, and of course, this Lord say, "I forbid you to covet her or him. Don't even think about it, because even thinking about it is a grave sin against the Lord." And then after these two, the house and the wife, the Lord continues his commandment by saying that we should, as a matter of fact, not desire our neighbor's servants or animals or anything that is our neighbor's. It is not so that the Lord means with this, that because we like to have it, we may not want to try to buy certain possessions from our neighbor. But he means that we may not even desire to have what our neighbor owns if there is no lawful way to get it. The Lord forbids us to cover, to desire the property of our neighbor if we have to commit a sin to get it. If our neighbor does not want to sell what we would like to buy from him or from her, then we should immediately stop desiring it. And we should immediately begin to rejoice with that neighbor that he is the blessed owner of such a desirable thing. We are not allowed to walk around with our eye constantly upon our neighbor's possessions, devising in our minds all kinds of schemes of how we could get them. Daydreaming about what we would do if we only would have it. It's a sin against the Lord. 
You see, there is that mistaken idea about many people, also many good church people. There's that mistaken idea that one's thoughts are free, meaning as long as I only think about it by myself, as long as you don't do anything about it, then it doesn't really matter. Then I haven't done anything wrong. Wrong. It does matter. It's absolutely not true that our thoughts are free. And, 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 to, and to, to think and meditate upon such things is very dangerous. Sometimes the Lord just lets you slide so that the desires become actions. Thinking about sin does matter a whole lot. As a matter of fact, it is just deadly. Listen to what James writes in, one, in James 1, verse 14 and 15. He says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Now, if we by this commandment of the Lord are forbidden to covet what he has entrusted to our neighbor, then this means not that the Lord commands us to do nothing in regard with the blessings our neighbors receive for him. No. We ought to rejoice with him, to thank the Lord for the grace and the mercy that he shows to our neighbor. And that is not an option. That is what, we, what the Bible teaches us to do. The Lord taught us this very clear when he told us that parable of that one lost sheep. When the sheep is found, the owner calls all his friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep. That was lost. And in Romans 12, verse 15 Scripture, the Holy Spirit commands us to rejoice with those who rejoice. So we rejoice with those who rejoice over the gifts and the possessions that he or she has received from the Lord. And we do not with bitter envy covet what they have. We truly love the Lord. And we truly love our neighbor as ourselves. And we love how the Lord blesses them. We love it when it goes well with our neighbor. That is the literal meaning of the Ten Commandments. And now we are ready to look at the answer of question 113 of our Heidelberg Catechism in our second point that deals with the reach of this commandment. I already mentioned in the beginning that the Tenth Commandment is in a way a climactic conclusion to the preceding nine. That's a whole extra dimension to the first nine commandments. And it does it because it addresses the, the desires of the heart. Also, it addresses the way we and what we think. That's why the answer of question 113 says that not even the slightest thought or desire, contrary to any of God's commandment ever, arises in our heart. Just as we saw already, that we are not allowed to desire to think of getting our neighbor's possession in a sinful way. We not, we not to have any thought contrary to the commandments. 
in the last few months, you have gone throughout the Ten Commandments and you followed the teaching of the Catechism. What you did is you undoubtedly, congregation, discovered that these commandments, each one of them, reads a lot further than you would expect at the first glance. Now, the Ten Commandments makes those first nine commandments reach even further and deeper. You see, without this Ten Commandment and, and the meaning of this Ten Commandment, we could really understand that rich young man. He told the Lord that he had kept all these commandments from his youth. But now here is the Ten Commandment, and it teaches that not even the slightest thought or the slightest desire, contrary to any of God's commandment, ever arise in our heart. See, that is where even this rich young man needed forgiveness. That he couldn't do. That he couldn't prevent. See, if there is no legitimate way to get something that belongs to your neighbor and you still desire to have it, then you place yourselves in the temptation to get it anyway. For example, by means of adultery, by means of stealing, deceit, or even murder. I know it takes a lot to do such actions, but what about thinking about it? So, just even playing with such thoughts in your heart is what the Lord addresses in that Tenth Commandment. David knew that the Lord looked that deep. He knew all about it. In Psalm 19, verse 12, he said, He prays, cleanse me from secret faults. David. He sometimes probably lay on his bed and was also dreaming about what he could do and thought himself safe by not doing it. And one day he met Bathsheba. It's so dangerous, brothers and sisters. If you catch yourself doing that, young people, laying on your bed and just dreaming away what you would do if you would only have thought of that from so and so. It's dangerous. David prays, search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way within me and lead me in the way everlasting. And Moses, another great man of God, he realized the reach of this commandment. And in Psalm 90, verse 8, he confesses, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. And in Jeremiah 17, verse 9 and 10, the Lord himself says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Do you believe the Lord? He's talking about your heart, mine. You need to really believe that. If you don't believe that, then you're in danger. Then Then you really believe that you're much better than you are. Heart is deceitful above all things. It's just a heart we, we belong on the foot of the cross, nowhere else. 
So again, the idea that our thoughts are free is a lie from the devil himself. So, brothers and sisters, we see that this commandment reaches into the deepest crevices and the most hidden deep secrets of our hearts. We are like, we are like an open book before our Lord. Our most secret thoughts are in the light of his countenance. And the Lord holds us accountable for those thoughts. He also rewards it if we fight them. Not only looking over his shoulder if we do something wrong, but he blesses us if we do something right too. Our thoughts are not free. Not all daydreaming is innocent. The commandment renders all men guilty before the Lord. He sets out total depravity, our sinful nature in the, light, in the spotlight of God's holiness and righteousness. Just for yourself, imagine that someone close to you, someone you respect and love, would know your most secret thoughts, your most secret dreams, your most closely guarded loves and desires. Would you think that a person could still love you or even like you? God knows all of them. And he loved you so that he gave his only begotten son. What wonderful grace. We know it so well and, and we say it so easy, so thoughtless sometimes. We are saved by grace. But it expresses a huge, amazing, beyond understanding miracle and an infinite love. God knows it all. God knew it already, even before we came in existence. And he loved you so much that he chose you in his only begotten son so that you would not perish. So that through his word and spirit, his people may begin to fight against the secret sinful desires in their hearts. Catechism asking question 114, can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? That's a good question. What about those who are converted from their selfish nature to God? What about those who are born again by God Holy Spirit, who are saved from their sins? What about those people in whom the Holy Spirit works his sanctifying work? Are they able to keep those commandments perfectly? Are they? No, says the answer in question to question 114. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of that obedience. Now imagine the holiest of all people. Look in your own heart and life. Do you belong to the holiest of all people? Are you of the caliber of Moses or David or the Apostle Paul? And we have just heard Moses as well as David cry out to God about the secret sins of their hearts. They couldn't control them all always. Even the holiest of men. The Apostle Paul speaks 
in Romans 7 about that order law at work in the, member, in, in, in the members of his body that wages war against the law of his mind, making his, him a prisoner of the law of sin. And so he cries out, who will rescue me from this body of death? They knew their hearts. That was deceitful above all things. And, and those holy men, like Moses, the Apostle Paul, David, and so on, they only have a small beginning. How small is, that? How small is then the beginning of our obedience to the Lord's commandment, brothers and sisters? Or maybe it's much smaller than that of Moses, or of David, of the Apostle Paul. But you know what? We do belong to our Lord and Savior. And therefore we have, be it ever so small, but it's a beginning. And we must confess it. Not that we don't sin any longer. Not that we have no sinful thoughts anymore. But that as our catechism says it in the answer of, to question 113, we hate all sin. That we have a delight in righteousness. See, that's the attitude change that the Tenth Commandment is talking about. It's about an attitude. We hate all sin and we have a delight in all righteousness. That wasn't always so. And so, yes, we do have maybe it even so, ever so small, but a beginning of the perfect obedience. And we may not deny this. We may not be overly humble and says, no, 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 I'm all sin. That cannot. And we may not deny the work of the Holy Spirit in us. There is that small beginning. And that should comfort us. And that should encourage us to make it grow. To work on it. Ever be striving. Ever be hating and fleeing from sin. Also, the sin of our minds. Don't you at times, brothers and sisters, not despise yourself of what you can think or, what, or, or, or be ashamed of what you were dreaming on at night? You woke up, how? You, you, you wonder. And don't you don't feel small and unworthy when you think about the love of your Savior? And do you think that you would feel that shame, that you would feel that way without the Holy Spirit, the Spirit working in your heart? So don't deny the work of the Holy Spirit. Don't deny that you have the small beginning, but work on it. Small beginnings can grow. The answer to question 114 also speaks of an earnest purpose to begin to live. With other words, a sincere desire to live according not to one, but to all the commandments of God. And this is, brothers and sisters, there are so many weaknesses in, in, in the believers' hearts. How serious do we take our sins? How serious do you take your sin? Do you know them? Do you take them serious enough to know what your sins are? I know we can 
we are all sinners and we sin against all the commandments and we know that all so well and it's so easy to say, but we are not all the same. And we sin in different ways. Do you know yours? Do you take, have you taken your sinning against the Lord serious enough to figure out what they are? How in a little corner of our hearts have we become sort of entitled to forgiveness just because we are Christians, just because we go to church all the time. And this part of the answer addresses the Lord's people struggle with sin. Ask yourself, does my own sin trouble me very much? Do I really struggle with it? Fight against my sin? Do I just assume that Jesus has paid for my sins? Small struggles with your sin result in small appreciation for your Savior. Maybe you too have to say, fighting against my sin, struggling with my sin, yes, I do, but not nearly enough. But you see, a small beginning, nevertheless, makes in the end still all the difference. But a small beginning has to be there. Without such small beginning, you still need to be born again. Even the holiest have a small beginning, and we who are not the holiest of men likely have an even smaller beginning, but we do have it, and we strive to make that small beginning grow, and the Holy Spirit works in us, and so it does grow. As long as we live, we cannot keep the commandments perfectly, and therefore we might ask with the Catechism question 115, if in this life no one can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God have them preached so strictly? Well, look at the answer to the question in the last point. In this answer, the catechism points as to two reasons of why God wants the commandment so strictly preached to us. The first one is so that throughout our life we become more and more aware of our sinful nature. Now, why, why does the Lord want us to know our sinful nature more and more? Is it just to rub it in, how sinful we really are? Of course not. The Lord does it because he loves us. He wants his law so strictly preached to us, so that, as our catechism says, we therefore seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of Christ. You see, the Lord really wants us to seek forgiveness of sins and to seek the righteousness of Christ. He didn't say that we would assume it. No, we need to seek it all our life long. And that is why he has the laws so strictly preached to us, because God knows that it's good for us. If we keep on seeking forgiveness, if we keep on praying for the righteousness of Christ, here in this life we will never be perfect, we just said, so here in this life we have all the reason to keep on praying for those things. We should not forget it even one day. See, and where do we, we, we find the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of Christ? Where do we find it? That's right, at the cross. The Lord wants the commandment so strictly preached to us, not to drive us to despair, 
with our inability to, to keep him perfectly, but to drive us to him who kept all those commandments perfectly for us, to keep us near the cross of our Savior. God loves us, and so he wants us to stay close to him who took upon himself the curse and the punishment of, for all the transgressions against all the commandments, for all our sinful thoughts, for all our sinful desires. He wants us, God wants us to stay close to our Savior. And therefore, he wants the commandment so strictly preached to us because he wants to drive us into the arms of his Son who loves us to the end, our Lord Jesus Christ. He wants us not striving to make up for our shortcomings, but striving to stay at the cross, striving to live from grace only. Hanging on to the cross in the heat of God, while the heat of God's anger burned upon him, our Savior took all the wicked, all the little dirty secrets, all these silent evil desires of our hearts upon himself. Spare pierced his heart. It pierced the heart with its only desire to do the will of his Father so the hearts of you and me may be cleansed by his, the blood and the water that flowed from it. And brothers and sisters, if we so see the Lord's love, we know that it is God. And if we so see our Savior, then we love him, for we know that he perfectly kept the law for us. We love, he loved us first, and now we love him. And then we also love these commandments, so strictly preached to us, because it keeps us from wandering from the cross, it keeps us from wandering and getting lost in the desert of false pride and self-righteousness. It keeps us from the downward slope of looking down upon a neighbor who stumbled and fell. It is from him, our Savior, that this law comes to us. And he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery of sin and out of the house of bondage of death, curse and hell and therefore you shall not have even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of my commandments ever arise in your heart. And we love him. And therefore, just as the second part of question 115 says, while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image. And that striving that you, you do in prayer ever closer, ever close to the cross. Every day we pray that we may answer again to that goal for which God created us, namely to reflect his image and his glory. And we know that our faithful and loving God most certainly hears our prayer. The day will most certainly come that your small beginning will become perfect obedience. The obedience you now crave will be the perfect image of our God as he created us to be. In the meantime, yes, we struggle. But we may come with that struggle before the throne of grace. And we know that we will never reach perfection here on earth, but he has promised that he will make all things new. Our Savior is coming quickly, and then our struggle will be turned in victory. 
Then our striving is turned into triumph. Then our weakness is turned into strength. And our griefs have turned into joy. And glory will take the place of misery. God wants his law so strictly preached to us to keep us near the cross. And there we may journey towards the day of days in which we will walk with our Savior in the light of our Father's holiness and be perfectly at home there. Amen.